Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect with James Perrin. This is the podcast all about big picture conversations with people from all walks of life who are motivated and having an impact in the realms of nature and humanity. I'm your host, James Perrin, and I'd like to start by acknowledging that this podcast was recorded on Arakwal land, part of Bunjalung country, and I want to pay my respects to First Nations people around Australia and around the world. This podcast was also recorded uh, in the back of a van. So if you've listened to a few of my episodes, then you'll know that I like to do them all in person because I feel that that's how I can have a proper connection with someone. And I usually go to people's homes or offices and I, I really enjoy that. You know, being invited into someone's space and in their place is really special. But yeah, with today's guest, we didn't quite have that option, so we recorded this episode in the back of a van on a back street in Byron, so excuse the odd passing car, but that's okay, because my guest today is someone who has been to some of the most wild and remote places on this beautiful planet. Speaking of wild, it's less than two weeks until I head to Tasmania and run in the Tekina Ultra. This is the ultra marathon through the Tarkine rainforest to raise awareness for funds for its protection. So you might remember in my introduction to the Dave Rastovich episode, I spoke about the fight against the logging company that we were having in order to hold the event. Well, we won that, so the event is able to go ahead, which is great. But that's only just the beginning. You see, what we need now is to really dial up the campaign to say we want to protect this wild and precious place. My guest today, in fact, talks exactly of this. He says how important it is to have a voice and how now, more than ever, we're able to use it through the likes of social media. So what can you do? Please follow the Bob Brown Foundation on social media. They are posting all of the info about how you can how you can help and they are fighting so hard to protect this rainforest and please if you can one of the reasons we're doing this run at all is to raise funds. So if you can click the link in my Instagram bio and you can donate to protect Tasmania's ancient old growth forests which is under threat of logging. All funds go directly to the cause. Okay, so who was my guest today? Well, firstly, do you remember Planet Earth? The original big, bold nature documentary starring David Attenborough? Of course you do. Chances are you own or owned it on DVD because it is the highest selling DVD in the world by far. Well, my guest today is the filmmaker and director behind not just Planet Earth, but Planet Earth 2, Frozen Planet, Frozen Planet 2, Seven Worlds, One Planet, and more. Yes, he is the guy that led the teams to gather the footage and put together these incredible documentaries. Would you believe that Planet Earth came out 14 years ago? Which feels like kind of a long time, and I guess it is in a way, but in the scheme of things, it's just a blip on the radar. And it's easy to think how we're not doing enough or moving quickly enough to protect our planet. But how's this? That original Planet Earth series had zero mention of conservation or environmental issues. It was purely entertainment. Fast forward 10 years later and its sequel, Planet Earth 2, has had so much environmental conservation messaging built in. It it just had to. It would have been rejected otherwise. 
So my guest today goes into detail his journey making these epic wildlife films over his career, and he beautifully articulates the importance of storytelling and presenting nature as an art form to be truly appreciated in its own right. I've said this in previous conversations with guests that we shouldn't be motivated to protect nature and our environment because we see its value as ecosystem services that need to be preserved. That's a very selfish way of thinking about it. We should want to protect nature just because it exists and just because we love it and appreciate its beauty. And this is what these big, bold, beautiful documentaries have done for me. And this is what we talk about in this conversation today, the role of art and storytelling in our lives. We talk about the limitations of science because many people don't get motivated by numbers and statistics. We talk about the changes in habitat of wild places around the world and the impacts that humans are having. And I ask some critically important questions about films like this. For example, what was it like when you first shot that snakes and iguanas scene? Or what do you do when you see an animal suffering in the wild? How do you know when to intervene? And most importantly, we talk about what you can do, what we can do as individuals to have an impact because we do all have a voice and we can all play a critical role. So without further ado, here is a man who has had incredible experiences traveling the world and filming wildlife. He is a wildlife biologist, director and filmmaker, Dr. Chadden Hunter. Do it. Yeah. Good. Beautiful. All right. Chadden, welcome to the show. Cheers, James. Good to be here. Mate, thank you so much for joining me. And, um, you know, thanks for for being in, in the van on the side of the road as we record this. Usually I, I try to record this in like a, a meeting space or, you know, sometimes people come to my house or sometimes I go to their houses. Uh, nothing was available today, but um, knowing that you've been around the world quite literally... Uh, I thought you probably are okay with sitting in the back. Oh, it's all good. It's like, it's like being on safari. We've got grass blowing in the wind out here, yep. trees, cicadas <laughs> crackling, birds overhead. It's nice. Yep. yep. You know, it's like, it's. I can just, looking out there, I'm just envisaging David just kind of wandering past yeah, into the frame and then just turning to us, <laughs> saying a monologue and then wandering off the frame again. Yeah, through the Byron Bay acacia scrub. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um... Yes, so the, the podcast is called The Overview Effect, and I, I love to start all the conversations with the same kind of question, which is thinking about that concept, that experience that astronauts have when they shoot up into space and look back on Earth and have this kind of profound moment of, you know, what's important and special to them. Have you had any moments in your life, periods of time or experiences where you've had a similar experience? Yeah, I mean, it's fa it's fascinating to pinpoint. I... It, it's a fascinating question. I I think if I could pick one moment, it would probably be the moment that really triggered my career change in my late 20s away from wildlife biology and into filmmaking. Uh, and I was, I was doing my PhD on gelada baboons in Ethiopia, up in the highlands, and I was up there living the dream, my, my Diane Fossey gorillas in the mist dream, uh, and thinking I was being very worthy. And... I began to realize that what I was doing in studying the monkeys wasn't doing much to help them. 
because they were they were uh, crop raiding pests for a lot of farmers, mm. and the farmers wanted to kill the monkeys or petition the government to kill them. And in all my studies and my research, I realized I was, that what I was doing academically was was doing very little to to reach people and to change people's minds. And there was one moment when I was in Addis Ababa, the capital capital of Ethiopia, and I managed to get on a, a, a small chat show, Ethiopian chat show, and I had enough Amharic by then, the local language, to be able to explain my love of the monkeys and why they were so special and why I had come from the other side of the world to study them, and the fact that gelada baboons were only found in Ethiopia. And that 30 minutes, for me, was an absolute epiphany, because... Everything changed after that. The next day, I had people coming up to me on the street saying, oh, you're that monkey man. I saw you on television. <laughs> uh, you know, I had no idea that gelada baboons were only found in Ethiopia. Oh, wow. Yeah, most Ethiopians think that gelada are just vermin or pests that everybody on the planet has to deal with. They think yes. they're, they're cockroaches or rats. Wow. Uh, and so they were stunned that they were unique to Ethiopia, and they were stunned that this white guy had come from, from the other side of the world to study them. <laughs> and so I realized this this change that I'd made to who knows how many thousands of people. There's there's 80 million Ethiopians out there, but I don't know who was watching. But it was just a, it was a real epiphany in terms of t- if you want to move people or change people in big ways to take your message wider and to use tools that work on much bigger scale. And and it, it brings me back as a as a conservationist myself. I I have a real hard time with that that famous phrase of think globally, act locally. Yes. Because for me, it it, it I think there's been this this kind of I'm going off on a tangent here. Please but do. I think there's been this this almost kind of neoliberal con, if you like, that there's this emphasis on the individual to do everything, mm-hmm. and everything, it, it came from America, but it was it was this focus that the individual can solve everything, and you take responsibility, and it felt like it was freedom, but what it did was it kind of, it, it eroded a lot of, you know, humanity's biggest responsibilities as groups and societies, yes, and, and yeah, the collective, yeah. We're, we're a social primate, and we do our best, sometimes do our worst, but we just certainly do our best and groups, and I think for a, a long time, for decades, conservation was was hurt by this this perception that the individual had to carry everything by recycling at home. That was what it was all about. Yes. And yes. so for me, I I, I really realised that um you know you had to, I had to take on bigger powers. You know, I had to tackle politics and corporations, and by working on shows like Planet Earth or Seven Worlds One Planet, you know, you know these days I can reach millions of people as opposed to the, what I thought was worthy was a PhD that four people ever read. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, it, I guess there's value in both. The, the, there's the, the, the highly quantitative aspect of your, your, you know, science and study and research. But I guess what I'm hearing from you is that that, that has a limited connection with people. You know, there's only, it's only so far that facts and figures can take us. Um, in, in motivating people, but it's really you're kind of talking about the power of storytelling and connecting people. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm I'm a a scientist through and through, and uh, you know I'll, I'll push my kids to do science at school because I think it's in its purest form. It's to understand the world empirically. I think is the, is the noble way to do it. You know that's how I think people should be thinking, and we should be using logic. And 
we're going through an era where science is getting really beaten up at the moment because people see something on Instagram and all of a sudden conspiracy theories are uh, floating everywhere. And so I, I'm really scared that science is going through a, an era of disrespect and yet it doesn't have an agenda. It's just it's just a very logical, pure way of trying to understand the world. So so science for me is, um, I'm very passionate about it, but you're right. It's It's a lot of us geeks who have science careers or love just trying to understand the world by trial and error and, and by a logical process, there is often a mislatch there about moving people and connecting with people. And, and yeah, as you say, it's like nothing stirs the human soul more than a story. Mm. And, I mean, we learn this in politics. You know, the most successful politicians are out there telling emotional stories as opposed to saying, well, you know, we'll help you with, with this amount of welfare or these, these statistics. Yes. So, yes, we're not voting really on policy. We're voting on the heart. personality yeah, and, yeah. and our heart, aren't we? Yeah, and and I, I, I totally hear what you're saying in terms of science in its purest form, um, you know, is just understanding the world empirically and it's a, it's a noble tool. Um, I think we as humans, like we do with everything, um, we can distort that and and a lot of may potentially where a lot of people that are maybe turning their back on science potentially where they're coming from and what they're feeling is that science has been distorted or misused by different groups and different agencies and different organizations over over time there are examples of science being misused and also i think potentially people outsourcing their own intuition to science sometimes i think it's a balance of both right we've got to take the purity mm. and the tool of science and balance that with our own emotions and intuition and intention yes true true but i think i think some of the say science bashing side of things is because i think uh, you know m- m- new types of media and social media especially give a platform to people who want to rant about anything and it used to be you know, for our grandparents' generation, it would have only been experts or trusted, peer-reviewed or knowledgeable people that actually probably got a voice in print, in a journal or in a newspaper. And you, you did have some trust in uh, the fact that we, we looked to people who, who did have knowledge. And I, I'm not sure if it's, it's that science has been um, misused. I think it, it's more that, you know, if you want to, if you want to, twist people's minds these days you can come up with any kind of spreadsheet or any kind of pdf or any kind of it, it you know the, the fake news has, has risen to a point where people can latch onto things whereas um to get a science paper published in journal to get even you know a vaccine trial through and you know that's a touchy subject yeah <laughs> in byron shire you know vaccinations but to get that through the amount of well-trained doctors and well-meaning scientists and the system of scientific rigor that modern medicine has brought us is staggering so to all of a sudden say that you know everyone in a lab coat is evil and and there's some bill gates conspiracy is is just utter madness i mean the you know the the, those people in those positions um you know everywhere in the world you might have one or two bad eggs but but the structure is such that you know everything we've done good in humanity has come from this respect for knowledge and using our brains and learning from each other and mm. yeah, I yeah. guess I guess you know and that highbrow stuff that you know I I can't understand you know quantum physics but God I'm gl- glad those guys are at it <laughs> yes and I guess the, the, the you know in in our modern world we 
we don't our attention spans are so short and we we don't read or go into the detail on anything anymore we just see a headline or even hear someone relay a headline you know and we take that as oh well that must be true and that that can be shared and that can be proliferated without any kind of rigor or you know testing now now it can but but i don't i think 20 or 30 years ago we didn't have that kind of platform and i think what we're seeing now with things like the the recent u.s election is a slight um a slight backlash or the pendulum starting to swing back to whoa this is unchecked we're talking about violence we're talking about civil unrest we're talking about real damage to society because we've created these beasts in in things like social media that that really can do damage um and so i do think i'm not i'm not that i'm advocating strict regulation but i think um you know you do have a responsibility if you're going to go out there and start preaching hate speech we do have laws against things like that that's an extreme example but if you're going to go and spread misinformation or um abusing a science headline because you found it on instagram or something then yeah i'm i'm all i'm all about shutting that down or checking on it because because you know as a as a human race as a crowded planet we have to use our brains we have to get on and they're, they're going to be if we were a hamlet of people you know 150 people living together there'd be expectations there'd be peer pressure there'd be um we'd look out for each other's backs and there would be a kind of a cohesion there the slight problem with the whole human species is that we we don't know as many of our neighbors anymore and we live this globalized life where you can be on the internet as a stranger and just abuse anyone and it's so it's it's really eroded at a a lot of really good things about what how humans treated each other i think yeah yeah and and it's it's such a distraction for us to take away from a lot of the you know enormous issues that we're facing you know and i mean you've traveled the world literally multiple times Mm. um so we see these documentaries we 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 hear we see photos and videos we hear the news headlines we hear these environmental messages but i guess can you kind of paint the picture a bit about in terms of kind of what you've seen in terms of environmental and habitat change over your travels and experiences what's happening out there yeah, wow, it's a, such a such a tough <laughs> question. Um, I mean, I have been out, you know, in the wildest parts of the corner, you know, corners of the world for twenty, thirty years. I've been lucky, uh, and habitat destruction is one of the most depressing things that that I witness. I mean, in some ways, it's almost more viscerally depressing depressing than something like climate change, because climate change is much harder to see and yeah. to 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 really understand how it affects us, but. Yeah, I mean, habitat destruction, you know, deforestation of rainforests for palm oil, um, <clears throat> poaching in, in Africa, uh, overfishing by, you know, illegal fishing fleets is utterly depressing. I mean, what what we don't know as scientists is what the tipping points will be and how robust uh, biology is on the planet. And I think in some ways you know conservationists have this tough battle because you you want to get word out there but the more you scream the more people kind of start to lose mm. interest so it's it is often trying to find a balance but i like to i mean coming back to storytelling as you mentioned when you get the story right and you can really hook people's interests then you can make make change and i think you know we're going to lose a lot more habitat before before it stops there's no doubt about that 
one thing that, that I will say when I travel to some of the far corners of the planet is there are some amazingly vast tracts of land, you know, um, pristine habitat still out there. That depends what you think is acceptable. I mean, if I if I had my way, not one single more tree would be chopped down. Yeah. But, um, you know, we see the pictures of chainsaws and bulldozers and palm oil and, and okay, we you know, we still have decent patches of, of habitat at the moment. It's 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 the damage isn't abating at the moment. Um, what I do take hope from is the fact that humans of a species have a, have the ability to change really quite quickly, and when you get the story right, uh, you know you really can snap people's judgment. Uh, I mean, a couple of examples for me, just going back to things like Blue Planet Two, which was a series that uh, we made with David Attenborough. A lot of people obviously saw it. Yep. Uh, that was something where that that team was struggling to work out what conservation issues to put in there. You know, overfishing is huge. Was it going to be climate change and sea level rise? There were so many things to tackle. And David was actually the guy that said to the team, look, um, why don't we just focus on something a little smaller and a little more tangible like plastics? And a lot of the you know the marine biologists on the team were like, you know, come on, David, that's not even that's not even the fourth or fifth biggest risk to the oceans at the moment. But he had a good point in that it was it happened to be an issue that people felt like they could mobilize around and yes. people could get their hands on and it was visible and uh, the effect was phenomenal. We talk about this thing called the the Blue Planet Two effect it was talked about in British Parliament. It changed they changed laws around plastic bags wow. because of this one TV show. Yeah, and it was because this you know this message hit a bullseye. It was also something that people, you know, they could go out to their local beach and join a community beach cleaning yes. operation. Uh, but it was, the one thing I like about the, the plastics issue, and it's, as I said, there are bigger things to tackle, but it's an example for me of how quickly society and humans can change. Yep. And I, I, I kind of sometimes give this example where if I was in, went into a cocktail bar 10 years ago and had a gin and tonic and someone put a plastic straw in it, wouldn't have thought about it at all. Wouldn't nope. have thought of thing. And I'm a I'm a wildlife biologist, and I wouldn't have even a marine biologist in my undergrad, and I wouldn't have even thought about it. Wow. And yet now, any of us, you don't even have to be a biologist. You go into a cocktail bar, and someone puts a plastic straw in there, and you you're looking around for the cameras and thinking, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell. <laughs> and that is amazing. That is amazing yes, that that, right. that the whole of society has this slight ooh plastics ooh awareness. Yes. Um, so that's yeah, it's an example of, of, of how kind of you know a, a succinct story and and messaging can yeah make change. It's got to have you're right. It's got to have visible. It's got to be visible to people. It's got to be urgent enough. And it's I think they've got to have a, the people receiving the message have got to have agency. They can't be hopeless. Yes, you know, yeah, and yeah. and I think. You think about those three things, and you, a lot of the messaging around climate change. None of none of we have none of those, you know, as the general public. So it's it's interesting. You're, you're totally right. We're really good at tackling acute issues as humans, and think that's environmental issues, but also even like thinking about medical our, our medical health. You know, we're good at solving acute issues, mm. but chronic issues, we're hopeless at it. We're terrible at it. Even yeah. people, people can't look after their diets. You know, we yeah. can't look after chronic environmental issues. There's something that we're not hardwired to be able yeah. to tackle yeah. far off in the distance. And yeah. I mean, we're, we're, a, we're a primate that's designed to, you know, to, 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 to make sure we have offspring. <laughs> and if we're lucky, make sure our offspring 
survive. You yeah. know, if we, if we, as a, as a biological self, you know, replicating organism, if we can get to <laughs> grandchildren, that's generally what a mammal is doing well at. But yeah, for us to have this long-term view and, and part of the problem is, is just our, I'm not going to say population is a problem, but the, when you're on at a much smaller scale, damage done by a small-scale mammal, even a clever one that hunts and, you know, there's hunter-gatherers in Papua New Guinea that would chop down a tree and, and it doesn't matter at that scale. But the mm. scale the scale that we can wreak destruction now, yeah. large-scale farming and, and things like that is, is, is quite scary because we're still, as an individual, as a stockholder, as a CEO, as a corporate interest person, it, it, it still is about... Oh God! Well, I can get my Christmas bonus. I can put food on the table for my kids. I can yes. pay off the mortgage, and so we still, yeah, we we still think about our own personal gains. I mean, those you know illegal Asian fishing boats out there. Those fishermen aren't evil people, but they're trying to they're trying to feed a family, and they think, oh, well, if I could just get this done, yes. and that would have worked when you know when we were hunter gatherers or yeah, you know, a few hundred thousand across the planet. But at the at the the scale we're at now. And the modern te- the modern technological ways that we can destroy the habitat, it's yeah, yeah, it's so wide reaching. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in you talking about you know getting that balance of story right. You know, and you've obviously created these enormously successful documentaries to tell the story about wildlife and 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 our natural world. And we're hearing about it all the time now, but it was not so long ago that it wasn't even mentioned. I think I've heard you talk, I've heard you on another video talk about when you were making planet earth. I don't think you even mentioned environmental issues once. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, the entire 11 hour series, planet earth, the original, and not one single word about conservation in it because, because back then it was called, it was the C word <laughs> in, in, uh, in our TV circles and with our BBC commissioners and bosses, it was the C word. Don't mention conservation because you'll put people off. Wow. What we, what was happening in wildlife filmmaking was that we we're drifting away from drier, more textbook style stuff in the old days to, to really making entertainment blockbusters. And the original planet earth 14 years ago was the big seminal one, the, 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 the gorilla on the block that just landed. And oh, that yeah. was that, that DVD is in more homes around the planet than any other DVD on the planet. So when you, wow. yeah, so when you, when you want to talk reach, Wow, and by a long way, by a long way, that I'm not sure if you own a copy. But, yeah, but yeah, we definitely. Yeah, a we lot do. of your listeners yes. will have Planet Earth on their DVD shelf, and it's and it's in more homes around the planet than any other DVD. And you think, my God, what a missed opportunity! <laughs> not one single word about trying to protect those those beautiful places, and that was only 14 years ago that we made that. But what I think's happened since then in in this decade that's there's almost on fast forward with environmental issues is. The viewers have, have, you know, we've learned that they expect it more. We realized we couldn't, when we made Planet Earth 2, 10 years after Planet Earth 1, we knew there was no way that we could get away with pretending the world was pristine jungles and pristine mountains and pristine deserts. Mm. And so we've had to, to slowly start weaving in some kind of responsible messaging, conservation messaging within the actual bodies of the shows themselves. But that's a real delicate balance for us as filmmakers, what what I think a lot of people don't realize about the Big Attenborough shows and, and nature documentaries in general, a lot of people don't realize that the vast majority of viewers come to those shows for escapism and entertainment. 
They might be on a Sunday night yeah. and they come there to not think about the taxi they're going to drive on Monday morning or the job they're going to go to. Yes. They just want to be taken away to this beautiful place where the polar bears roam or the parrots in the Amazon. And a lot of us who care about the environment find it kind of quite shocking to learn that. We think, God, surely you, you want to care about the environment. Surely you want education and message and, and whatnot. But I assure you, we're in a minority, a vast minority. There are, there are geeky films out there for the fans and the, the, the nature lovers. But the big, the big ones like Planet Earth, the reason it's in so many homes around the world is it's, it's awe-inspiring, it's jaw-dropping, it is beauty, it is drama, it is art in a way. And so the challenge of us is to try and maintain that, that artistic grandness and that, that entertainment blockbuster type scale and yet then bring in messages that, that also make you care about it. Is, it's been one of the greatest challenges yeah. in my career as a wildlife filmmaker. And we have to find creative ways to do it. We have to find deft ways to do it. Um, I, there's a, one example in Planet Earth 2 where there's a scene with some turtle hatchlings on a beach and they were falling into drains and they were, they were being disorientated by city lights. Yes, yes. And it was really harrowing it was. watching these, yeah. these hatchlings uh, just, just struggling and, and getting stuck in cups and most of them were going to die. And we had, we had more response to that scene in the entire Planet Earth 2 series than anything else. Like even the wow. famous snakes and iguanas. Remember the snakes yes. and iguanas? Yeah, oh my God. Which went global, viral, oh you know, it's probably the most famous yes. wildlife scene ever. Yes. But we had more response from viewers to the turtle hatchlings. And the reason is it was so upsetting. It was so harrowing. Um, people were screaming at the television. People were, were screaming at the BBC online. Why didn't you save those turtle hatchlings? Mm. We had to get very proactive the next morning with a with a social media campaign explaining that we were working with an NGO who was rescuing every single one of those turtle hatchlings. So just as we were filming over the shoulder of these these rescuers, the hands were coming in and picking up the hatchlings and rescuing them. Now we didn't show the rescue because we wanted to show the story for us was well, you know, city lights fuck. Uh, city lights mess with the turtle yeah. hatchlings. You can swear. You're no, too yeah, there you yeah. Go. Um, and yeah, yeah. So, so it was. We had to get very proactive with our social media campaign to assure people that those hatchlings didn't die. You weren't just watching them die. But, but it what? Yeah. But what it reminded me was that the challenge for us was where do you put that scene in the film? Because if mm. we had put those turtle hatchlings at the very front of that city's episode. You know, how many of your family members might have been reaching for the remote saying, oh, God, you know what, Dad, I'm not sure I can watch any more of this. Yes. Or what's, I thought, I thought, you know, Attenborough's going to take us somewhere nice. It's a bit heavy for us. It's a bit heavy, it's a bit heavy yeah. to start the film with. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit heavy to start the film with. But we got it in there about three quarters of the way through the film. And it is a bit of a, an emotional whammy. Mm. But we want you to go on an emotional roller coaster ride when you watch these films. You should be exhausted by the end of them. <laughs> Uh, so I think I think we're getting better. We're getting better as, at filmmakers, and I I'll hold my hand up and say we, you know we're entertainment makers on these big ones, the big Attenborough shows. Um, we're getting better at weaving messages in. What we now need to get better at is the the follow-on campaigns and the outlets for people to do something. Yes. One of our big problems at the BBC is that we uh, we're, we've been mostly publicly funded, and therefore have to be incredibly impartial and can't really be seen as advocates of any one cause. Yep. So it's, it's really tough. We get to the end, I get to the end of making a film about African grasslands 
And I can talk about the elephants being poached, but when the credits come up, I can't say, if you'd like to help, donate here yes. or click on here. Because if we did that at the BBC, every single other NGO would be like, well, what about us? What about us? How, how come you're advocating them? You're not supposed to be advertising. Sure. So I've always felt a little hamstrung at the BBC and my colleagues too, in that we are almost kind of hamstrung by our impartiality. We can tell you the issue, but humans are sitting, sitting on the sofa. Our viewers sat there on a Sunday night, like with the credits rolling, going, but what do we do? What do we, yes. what do, we do? And then Strictly Come Dancing comes on. And <laughs> <laughs> so it's, been, it, it's, it's more about using the impact, the, the reach we can get. Let's not call it impact. Let's call it reach. So mm. the, the, the reach that we can get with these massive Planet Earth type series is phenomenal. But, but the trick is how do you then turn that into action? Yeah. How do you then give some, someone palpable how do you then give them a a a campaign to join or social media to follow or how do you convert that yeah 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 um but i guess i guess the 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 role that those documentaries have played it's almost like a forgive the analogy but almost like a gateway drug you know (laughs) it's that it's that 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 softer entry point um through entertainment that is connecting people to nature um, and what started 12, 14 years ago with 99% entertainment maybe and a little bit of environmentalism, sounds like that's shifted very much so and there are many more environmental messages. So I think it probably feels like a lot for you because it's been, you know, a career's worth, but it's actually a pretty short time span for that messaging to evolve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to think that... As we just said, you know, the original planet Earth didn't have one single word about the environment, and, mm. and now it would be unforgivable. Yeah, you know, now that we've gone through Blue Planet Two and Seven Worlds, One Planet was the the big series we just finished with yep. Attenborough, and every single one of those episodes, each episode of Seven Worlds, One Planet goes to one continent and mm. showcases the wildlife of that continent, and in every single continent we talk about some environmental issues in there. It doesn't mean it's any less beautiful. It doesn't mean it's any less classy and grand. Uh, but, but yeah, we're at, we're at a stage now where we, you know, I wouldn't work on a film now that was just, just beauty and glory if it didn't have yes some other... It wouldn't feel of, real now anymore, would it? Because yeah. Because that's what people yeah. expect. But you should, but, but on, the, on the flip side, just to play devil's advocate yeah. for a moment, I do think that there should be, a, there still should be a place for the beauty and the art and the awe-inspiringness. And I, I sometimes give this example of of walking into an art gallery and seeing a beautiful painting of a big male Tusker elephant and standing there looking at this painting going, oh my God, isn't that just incredible? Look at this massive elephant with massive tusks. And a conservationist coming in and saying, that's, that's despicable. How can you just have that painting up there without showing the blood of the poaching yeah. or that's covered in blood or messaging or have one tusk cut off like a Banksy to show the peril they're in? And I would say, well, no, that's I, I disagree. I think there is a place for that that pure enjoyment of nature, and, and you can't. We, we, what we don't want to do is paralyze people with despair. Mm. You know, um, I'm fond of saying that depression is not a great motivator. Totally, <laughs> totally. So. And and um, it's kind of that that old saying. You know, we protect what we love, and by just showing that beauty, you're creating that in your viewers they they see that that beautiful majestic elephant or creature whatever it is and they they have that beautiful connection in you know in their heart hopefully when they're watching that film and learning about that creature and then maybe later when they in another forum or some somewhere else they hear about 
some environmental issue. They've had that connection that's been built through the film, through yeah, the that's, art. Yeah, that's the hope. That's the hope. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I think for, for quite a long time as wildlife filmmakers, we, <clears throat> we just assumed that would happen or hoped that would happen while we went off on our wonderful safaris and had our fun. Mm. Uh, but now I think, you know, we're all a bit more conscious about holding the hand of the viewer or making sure there is the the you call it the gateway drug but then yeah. we want to make sure the next one's there <laughs> yeah, yes yeah you know true. like giving people that that chance to to get involved or um yeah you know inspiring someone to, to write to their local politician or write to you know tag your local corporation on social media or yes. just kind of get involved with the big powers yes yes i have to ask you you mentioned that before the the iguanas and snakes scene were you guys watching that? Were you? Because I remember the first time I watched that, I was like audibly, like yelling, like cheering on when <laughs> when it escaped. Were you guys the same? Were you watching that, just going, "Oh my goodness, how did that?" Yeah, it, it was. It was pretty phenomenal. I wasn't there in the field for that one. Yeah, I was on. It was in the shot in the uh, Galapagos Islands. Yeah, and we were there filming because it, it was for the Islands episode of Planet Earth Two, and the team were there mainly to film the iguanas. I mean, it was an iguana story. And that snake behavior hadn't really been seen that commonly. In fact, we went, we sent, we got, I mean, the footage in there is we, we scraped it together and nursed it. And there's a lot of, I mean, I don't want to offend the camera operators, but there's a lot of shots out of focus. They, they didn't quite have the exact equipment they would have liked for the given the situation. Um, so the editor was pulling his hair out, trying to kind of piece it together. But of course the drama is so real that yeah. it didn't matter. But we went back the next year to try and film it again because we thought, oh my, this is a gold mine. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and the, uh, the, the, the timing of the, uh, the, the snakes coming out at the same time as the iguana hatchlings didn't quite line up and they just didn't see it. Right in the second year, so oh, it was wow. one of that's why we haven't seen it on film before. Yes, because it actually was a I think an unusual season where heat meant that snake activity was such that they could go after iguanas when they were small enough to get. And, wow, yeah. So wow. no, it was it wasn't one we scripted. It wasn't one we researched. <laughs> um, the guys in the field were like, "Whoa, you would not believe what we've just seen." And I think we're you know yeah having amazing. nightmares. Oh my gosh, amazing. <laughs> and then just. Just to touch on, I mean, you talked before about the turtles and how you actually, whilst you were filming the, that scene, you actually did have people there saving the turtles. Do you, Are there other moments where you're out in the wild and you see something happening, a creature, you know, being stalked or about to be killed and you feel like you need to intervene or you want to intervene and you, you can't or you, how do you know when and when not to? Yeah, it... it it is tough because our job means that we're on the front line of the most dramatic things in nature day in, day out. And so we see some pretty upsetting scenes. I mean, I've, I've probably seen more animals die than mm. all of your viewers put together because <laughs> listeners, because, because I'm out there and, yeah. and that's, you know, we might be we're filming a, a pack of lions for two months. We're going to see some animals lose their lives. Yeah. Um, but as a biologist and as a as a wildlife biologist, I think I've I guess I've grown up with this belief in the natural system and the you know ecosystems and the order of things yeah. and that whole cycle of life is a phenomenal thing to behold to see animals eat other animals get eaten by big whoa 
big truck. to see trucks drive past <laughs> smaller <laughs> trucks and bigger. But but um, it, so for me as a biologist, there's a slight, I guess, protection emotionally because what I'm seeing is natural selection, or I'm seeing every time I, I say a predator kills prey. Predators have it incredibly tough. I mean, yeah. their hit rate is low. They they die at greater rates. They're rarer. So to see you know to see a snow leopard make a kill, it's like you are cheering yeah. because you just think, oh god, the, the, what that mother's gone through to get that meal on the table. Of course. Now, if you know, we do often see animals in distress or or some really upsetting situations where an animal might die, and you could intervene to help. But for me. As a biologist, I I believe in natural selection, and I, I generally wouldn't step in as a rule of thumb. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is at the BBC or or just wildlife film crews in general, there isn't any rule, there isn't any protocol. It's it's purely down to personal philosophy and the personal situation. Wow. Where I draw the line personally is if there's even the slightest hint of a man-made yes. situation, and. Uh, as an example, I was uh, we were in Africa watching a baby elephant drowning in a mud hole and its mother was there screaming and the rest of the elephant herd was screaming and there's no way they could get it out, but that baby was going to die. And it was unbelievably upsetting, harrowing. But because it was a natural situation, I was like, well, I mean, A, it's dangerous to get in front of a mother elephant anyway, but... It it was gonna it was gonna happen whether we we're there or not. But then one of our drivers mentioned that the the mud hole actually was a a well made dug by Maasai herdsmen for their cattle. Oh wow! And then all of a sudden, for me, it just stepped over a red line. Whereas I, I was like, okay, no, no, I'm not going to let a baby elephant die in a man-made yeah. well. And so we spent the rest of the afternoon trying to get the the adults away, trying to get the baby out, and managed to. And I'm not saying it's a it's a perfect rule. It was just something that for me I noticed a trigger sure. switch. Um, so yeah, if it's natural selection, then I I generally would let it go. Yeah, as upsetting as it might be. Yeah, I'm really glad you did say though that you figured out that it was a man-made well and you didn't just say no, we let it drown. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I just thought, like wanted to hear my driver. What was that? What was that? Was that you said it's a man-made well? No, yeah. Yeah, 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 you did. I, I heard that. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a man-made yeah. tiger. I'm sure I can see a shovel mark there. So. <laughs> um, I want to ask you. I mean, you're you're a father of two young children, very young yeah. children. Two hundred, yeah. two hundred two, right? Two hundred two. Well, now they're one Keeps and busy. One and two. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And I mean, as am I. I'm on holiday. I'm sleeping right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, look, I, I totally know what you mean it's it's chaos um probably a, a, a similar in some ways but obviously different in many other ways to traveling the world and trying to film wildlife um but something about for me about young children is that you you kind of slow down and you start to see the world through their eyes you see them experiencing new things you see their curiosity they're playing with a new toy and learning how it works and you kind of or or they you see them watching a butterfly land yeah. on a flower or something and you kind of see the world through their eyes and it's really special as a parent to go through that do you get a similar sort of experience sometimes with wildlife and seeing the world through their eyes and how they see the world um yeah i think well i think you do you spend a, a lot of time with nature and it does create a you know an almost zen-like feeling once you're out there um and certainly you know 
some of my happiest memories of of nature have been times when I'm on my own. I mean, for me, mm. there's, there's almost nothing as, as kind of spiritually cleansing as as a solo bushwalk. You know, to yeah. just to, to just go and walk in forest or mountains on your own is is an unbelievably spiritual experience. Uh, so yeah, the, so I spent a lot of time, I guess, especially with my monkeys when I was doing my PhD yes. years, I'd sit there watching what was my family for three years. I wasn't, I was working alone sitting wow. around with, with 800 baboons all around <laughs> me in the mountains and you got to know personalities. You, you had them start to involve you in their fights and scraps. They'd, <laughs> if they'd have an argument, one would come and sit bes- right beside your shoulder, shoulder to shoulder. And you'd look at them and go, what's going on? And then you'd look up and realize that they were eyeing off an enemy and trying to say, hey, I'm with this guy. Oh, I'm, with wow. the, I'm with the researcher. And I'd have to divert my eyes and say, no, 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 I'm not getting involved. I'm not getting involved. <laughs> yeah, um, wow. But yeah, it is, it is, it's, you know, I love sitting there watching animals. It's, it's, it's something that, yeah, it's a prerequisite for our job because yeah. a lot of it's not action and adventure. A lot of it is unbelievable hours of, you know, you might get up at 4 a.m. and it's minus four to go and find a puma at dawn and literally lock eyes on her on the side of a mountain for the entire day and get to sunset and you might have headaches because you're so exhausted and then the sun goes down, it's minus four and you go home and and she didn't move a whisker. (laughs) But that was your day. That was kind of what the kind of things you need to do. So there's something really special. Zen you need for that. There's really something special and beautiful about that. Like in our modern Western world, we're just bombarded with information and different distractions all the time but to sit there and have a, a whole day of yeah. presence oh yeah yeah it's amazing and i i'm grateful every day for the job i do i think wildlife filmmaking is is the single best job in the world and i you know i'd encourage young people to to go for it where you know it's a booming industry and we can't stuff up enough but it's i mean it takes a lot of passion and a lot of dedication and you've got to you've got to enjoy the leeches and the yes <laughs> the patience but yeah the, to to be paid to go out and yes. watch animals it's oh it's unbelievable you know people <laughs> might save a lifetime for that bucket list safari and yeah. yet you know that's I'm lucky enough that's my day job. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, lucky. And 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 well we're lucky that you you know you share it with us and share it with the world. And I guess if there's, if there's one thing that I can, I could, one final question I can ask that you can leave us with, it's, I guess, going back to the listener, if, you know, in the face of all of the enormous negative environmental news we hear all the time and um, the, the, you know, people that maybe watch your films and, and love them but don't necessarily know what they can do and they, maybe they want to help and they're not sure what they can do, what would you say? What directions would you point well, them in? Well, I think it's, it does come back to something I said earlier about about not misdirection of energies, but I think there's been this big emphasis on individuals at home, you know, using the right products or organic fava beans versus, you know, this type of biodegradable plastic. And, and that's all very well, and we should be conscious of our individual consumer decisions. But that... I, I just think it's a bit of a smokescreen in this. What people should be doing is bringing the conversation to corporate power and political power. Mm. And in this day and age, we actually finally have the tools to do that. You can get on social media and tag a company, tag a shop, tag anyone on your high street. It doesn't, you don't have to go after, you know, McDonald's or, or Aldi if you don't want to, but you can, you know, it's, it's, it's important never to be negative and ne- never to be mean. But if you can, um, even it doesn't even matter if you have three followers on social media, 
if you went online and tagged your local coffee shop and said, hey, guys, I really like the fact that you're, you've are you given up on single-use cups, that thing, mm. they might uh, forward that tag to all of their followers mm. and it might get picked up by someone else. And, and so it's it, that conversation, the power to change corporate behavior, especially through social media, totally. has never been more powerful. And they listen. Um, you know, companies listen. They they do not like being named and shamed. Yep. They love positive glow. And it really has improved a lot of corporate behavior. And unfortunately, that is that is where the big changes happen. You know, if we can convince... I mean, I've seen massive campaigns from um, the way that McDonald's deals with eggs and milk and beef has, has improved dramatically over the last 10 years. The way that, say... Italian fashion won't use leather from Brazilian Amazon rainforest lots. There's all sorts of examples where corporations have have made a switch because of consumer pressure that has had radical changes to to, to wildlife and to the environment. And and, and as a bizarre kind of twist, um, you know, COVID's an example where we have situations in Asia where overnight... The Chinese government has shut down wet markets. Uh, things yep. like bears in bile farms is now shamed. A lot of the countries that do them so much that they, we're hoping that the last ever bile farm bear will be rescued or taken out uh, in a year or two. Wow, There's, there are phenomenal stories out there, but they're because the you know people responsible are seeing the spotlight shone on them. Yeah, and so that's the thing. It's like you might you might feel empowered, but I you know I sometimes talk to school groups and school students are great. You know they'll they'll go and watch an episode of one of these shows, and then we'll talk about the rainforest and palm oil. And as a class exercise, they'll all go and write a letter to one of their local supermarkets, talking about okay, palm oil might be here to stay, but can you please look for more sustainable sources of palm oil or yes. something? And and that does have an impact, you know. And I think so. I think it's. It's a very long answer, but I think if I could say anything to the listeners, it, it's doesn't matter how small it is, but 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 get out there and try and engage with um, the politicians and the and the corporations because they do listen, and that's where we'll make change. Yeah, and uh, and you're right. Our voice has never been stronger yeah. as individuals. Yeah. We've we've never had more influence, and I guess that's the with all the negatives that come with social media. There's a, there are actually a lot of positives with yeah, that transparency exactly. Exactly. And, and shining a spotlight that can come from it. Yeah, yeah. Chad, and I just want to say thanks again, not only for your time, taking the time out to chat to me today, but genuinely thank you for bringing to life those beautiful documentaries into our homes and into our lives. It's it's a really noble cause, and I'm glad you think it's the best job in the world. Yes, (laughs) I assure you the pleasure is all mine. (laughs) Awesome, mate. Thank you so much. Yeah, cheers, James. Cheers. Oh, yeah. I can't believe it. We must have got to, like, shot a range. Yeah. <laughs> because all the words can't be done so much.